0: Section 14 of an Essay Concerning Human Understanding, Book 3 of Words by John Locke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eloquent from Applebacksville, Pennsylvania. Chapter 11 of the Remedies of the Foregoing Imperfections and Abuses of Words, Part 1. Section 1. Remedies Are Worth Seeking The natural and improved imperfections of languages we have seen, above at large, and speech being the great bond that holds society together, and the common conduit, whereby the improvements of knowledge are conveyed from one man and one generation to another, it would well deserve our most serious thoughts to consider what remedies are to be found for the inconveniences above mentioned. Section 2 are not easy to find. I am not so vain as to think that any one can pretend to attempt the perfect reforming the languages of the world, no, not so much as of his own country, without rendering himself ridiculous. To require that men should use their words constantly, in the same sense, and for none but determined and uniform ideas, would be to think that all men should have the same notions, and should talk of nothing but what they have clear and distinct ideas of. Which is not to be expected by any one who hath not vanity enough to imagine he can prevail with men to be very knowing or very silent. And he must be very little skilled in the world who thinks that a voluble tongue shall accompany only a good understanding, or that men's talking much or little should hold proportion only to their knowledge. Section 3. But yet necessary to those who search after truth. But though the market and exchange must be left to their own ways of talking, and gossipings not be robbed of their ancient privilege, though the schools and men of argument would perhaps take it amiss to have anything offered, to abate the length or lessen the number of their disputes, yet methinks those who pretend seriously to search after or maintain truth should think themselves obliged to study how they might deliver themselves without obscurity, doubtfulness, or equivocation to which men's words are naturally liable, if care be not taken. Section 4. Misuse of Words, the Great Cause of Errors For he that shall well consider the errors and obscurity, the mistakes and confusion, that are spread in the world by an ill use of words, will find some reason to doubt whether language, as it has been employed, has contributed more to the improvement or hindrance of knowledge amongst mankind. How many are there, That when they would think on things, fix their thoughts only on words, especially when they would apply their minds to moral matters. And who then can wonder if the result of such contemplations and reasonings about little more than sounds, whilst the ideas they annex to them are very confused and very unsteady, or perhaps none at all? Who can wonder, I say, that such thoughts and reasonings end in nothing but obscurity and mistake, without any clear judgment or knowledge? Section 5. Has Made Men More Conceited and Obstinate This inconvenience, in an ill use of words, men suffer in their own private meditations. But much more manifest are the disorders which follow from it, in conversation, discourse, and arguings with others. For language being the great conduit, whereby men convey their discoveries, reasonings, and knowledge from one to another, he that makes an ill use of it Though he does not corrupt the fountains of knowledge, which are in things themselves, yet he does, as much as in him lies, break or stop the pipes whereby it is distributed to the public use and advantage of mankind. He that uses words without any clear and steady meaning, what does he but lead himself and others into errors? And he that designedly does it ought to be looked on as an enemy to truth and knowledge. And yet who can wonder That all the sciences and parts of knowledge have been so overcharged with obscure and equivocal terms, and insignificant and doubtful expressions, capable to make the most attentive or quick sighted very little, or not at all, the more knowing or orthodox. Since subtlety, in those who make profession to teach or defend truth, hath passed so much for a virtue, a virtue, indeed which, consisting for the most part in nothing but the fallacious and illusory use of obscure or deceitful terms, is only fit to make men more conceited in their ignorance and more obstinate in their errors. Section 6. Addicted to Wrangling About Sounds Let us look into the books of controversy of any kind. There we shall see that the effect of obscure, unsteady, or equivocal terms is nothing but noise and wrangling about sounds, without convincing or bettering a man's understanding. For if the idea be not agreed on, betwixt the speaker and hearer, for which the words stand, the argument is not about things, but names. As often as such a word whose signification is not ascertained betwixt them comes in use, their understandings have no other object wherein they agree, but barely the sound the things that they think on at that time as expressed by that word being quite different section 7 instance bat and bird whether a bat be a bird or no is not a question whether a bat be another thing than indeed it is or have other qualities than indeed it has for that would be extremely absurd to doubt of but the question is 1 either between those that acknowledge themselves to have but imperfect ideas of one or both of this sort of things for which these names are supposed to stand, and then it is a real inquiry concerning the nature of a bird or a bat to make their yet imperfect ideas of it more complete by examining whether all the simple ideas to which, combined together, they both give name bird, be all to be found in a bat. But this is a question only of inquirers, not disputers, who neither affirm nor deny, but examine. Or, two, it is a question between disputants, whereof the one affirms and the other denies that a bat is a bird. And then the question is barely about the signification of one or both these words, and that they not having both the same complex ideas to which they give these two names, one holds and the other denies, that these two names may be affirmed one of another. Were they agreed in the signification of these two names, it were impossible they should dispute about them, for they would presently and clearly see, were that adjusted between them, whether all the simple ideas of the more general name bird were found in the complex idea of a bat or no, and so there could be no doubt whether a bat were a bird or no. And here I desire it may be considered, and carefully examined, whether the greatest part of the disputes in the world are not merely verbal and about the signification of words, and whether, if the terms they are made in were defined and reduced in their signification, as they must be where they signify anything, to determined collections of the simple ideas they do or should stand for, those disputes would not end of themselves, and immediately vanish. I leave it then to be considered, what the learning of disputation is, and how well they are employed for the advantage of themselves or others whose business is only the vain ostentation of sounds, i.e., those who spend their lives in disputes and controversies. When I shall see any of those combatants strip all his terms of ambiguity and obscurity, which every one may do in the words he uses himself, I shall think him a champion for knowledge, truth, and peace, and not the slave of vainglory, ambition, or a party. Section 8. Remedies To remedy the defects of speech before mentioned to some degree, and to prevent the inconveniences that follow from them, I imagine the observation of these following rules may be of use, till somebody better able shall judge it worth his while to think more maturely on this matter and oblige the world with his thoughts on it. First remedy, to use no word without an idea annexed to it. First, a man shall take care to use no word without a signification, no name without an idea for which he makes it stand. This rule will not seem altogether needless to any one who shall take the pains to recollect how often he has met with such words as "instinct," "sympathy," and "antipathy," etc, in the discourse of others, so made use of as he might easily conclude that those that used them had no ideas in their minds to which they applied them, but spoke them only as sounds, which usually served, instead of reasons, on the like occasions. Not but that these words, and the like, have very proper significations in which they may be used, but there being no natural connection between any words and any ideas, these, and any other, may be learned by rote, and pronounced or writ by men who have no ideas in their minds to which they have annexed them, and for which they make them stand, which is necessary they should." if men would speak intelligibly even to themselves alone. Section nine, second Remedy To have distinct, determinate ideas annexed to words, especially in mixed modes. Secondly, it is not enough a man uses his words as signs of some ideas. Those he annexes them to, if they be simple, must be clear and distinct. If complex, must be determinate, i.e., the precise collection of simple ideas settled in the mind with that sound annexed to it as the sign of that precise determined collection and no other this is very necessary in names of modes and especially moral words which having no settled objects in nature from whence their ideas are taken as from their original are apt to be very confused justice is a word in every man's mouth but most commonly with a very undetermined loose signification, which will always be so unless a man has in his mind a distinct comprehension of the component parts that complex idea consists of, and if it be decompounded, must be able to resolve it still only till he has at last comes to the simple ideas that make it up. And unless this be done, a man makes an ill use of the word let it be justice, for example, or any other. I do not say a man needs stand to recollect and make this analysis at large every time the word justice comes in his way, but this at least is necessary, that he have so examined the signification of that name and settled the idea of all its parts in his mind that he can do it when he pleases. If any one who makes his complex idea of justice to be such a treatment of the person or goods of another as is according to law, hath not a clear and distinct idea what law is, which makes a part of his complex idea of justice, it is plain his idea of justice itself will be confused and imperfect. This exactness will, perhaps, be judged very troublesome, and therefore most men will think they may be excused from settling the complex ideas of mixed modes, so precisely in their minds. But yet I must say, till this be done, it must not be wondered that they have a great deal of obscurity and confusion in their own minds, and a great deal of wrangling in their discourse with others. Section 10. And distinct and comfortable ideas in words that stand for substances. In the names of substances, for a right use of them, something more is required than barely determined ideas. In these, the names must also be conformable to things as they exist. But of this I shall have occasion to speak more at large by and by. This exactness is absolutely necessary in inquiries after philosophical knowledge, and in controversies about truth. And though it would be well, too, if it extended itself to common conversation and the ordinary affairs of life, yet I think that is scarce to be expected. Vulgar notions suit vulgar discourses, and both, though confused enough, yet serve pretty well the market and the wake. Merchants and lovers, cooks and tailors, have words wherewithal to dispatch their ordinary affairs, and so, I think, might philosophers and disputants, too, if they had a mind to understand and to clearly understood. SECTION 11. THIRD REMEDY to apply words to such ideas as common use has annexed them to. Thirdly, it is not enough that men have ideas, determined ideas, for which they make these signs stand, but they must also take care to apply their words as near as may be to such ideas as common use has annexed them to. For words, especially of languages already framed, being no man's private possession, but the common measure of commerce and communication, it is not for any one at pleasure to change the stamp they are current in, nor alter the ideas they are affixed to, or at least, when there is a necessity to do so, he is bound to give notice of it. Men's intentions in speaking are, or at least should be, to be understood, which cannot be without frequent explanations, demands, and other the like incommodious interruptions, where men do not follow common use. Propriety of speech is that which gives our thoughts entrance into other men's minds with the greatest ease and advantage, and therefore deserves some part of our care and study, especially in the names of moral words. The proper signification and use of terms is best to be learned from those who, in their writings and discourses, appear to have had the clearest notions and applied to them their terms with the exactest choice and fitness." This way of using a man's words, according to the propriety of the language, though would have not always the good fortune to be understood, yet most commonly leaves the blame of it on him who is so unskillful in the language he speaks as not to understand it when made use of it as it ought to be. Section 12. Fourth Remedy. To declare the meaning in which we use them. Fourthly, but, because common use has not so visibly annexed any signification to words as to make men know always certainly what they precisely stand for, and because men, in the improvement of their knowledge, come to have ideas different from the vulgar and ordinary received ones, for which they must either make new words, which men seldom venture to do for fear of being thought guilty of affectation or novelty, or else must use old ones in a new signification. therefore. After the observation of the foregoing rules, it is sometimes necessary for the ascertaining the signification of words to declare their meaning, where either common use has left it uncertain and loose, as it has in most names of very complex ideas, or where the term, being very material in the discourse, and that upon which it chiefly turns, is liable to any doubtfulness or mistake. Section 13. And that in three ways. As the ideas men's words stand for are of different sorts, so the way of making known the ideas they stand for when there is occasion is also different. For though defining be thought the proper way to make known the proper signification of words, yet there are some words that will not be defined as there are others whose precise meaning cannot be made known but by definition, and perhaps a third which partakes somewhat of both the other as we shall see in the names of simple ideas, modes, and substances. Section 14. In simple ideas, either by synonymous terms or by showing examples. 1. First, when a man makes use of the name of any simple idea, which he perceives is not understood or is in danger to be mistaken, he is obliged, by the laws of ingenuity and the end of speech, to declare his meaning, and make known what idea he makes it stand for. This, as has been shown, cannot be done by definition, and therefore, when a synonymous word fails to do it, there is but one of these ways left. First, sometimes the naming the subject, wherein the simple idea is to be found, will make its name to be understood by those who are acquainted with that subject and know it by that name. So to make a countryman understand what moult color signifies, it may suffice to tell him it is the color of withered leaves falling in autumn. Secondly, but the only sure way of making known the signification of the name of any simple idea, is by presenting to his senses that subject which may produce it in his mind, and make him actually have the idea that word stands for. Section 15. In Mixed Modes, by Definition. Two, secondly, mixed modes, especially those belonging to morality, being most of them such combinations of ideas as the mind puts together of its own choice, and whereof there are not always standing patterns to be found existing, the signification of their names cannot be made known as those of simple ideas by any showing, but in recompense thereof may be perfectly and exactly defined. For they being combinations of several ideas that the mind of man has arbitrarily put together, without reference to any archetypes, men may, if they please, exactly know the ideas that go to each composition, and so both use these words in a certain and undoubted signification and perfectly declare, when there is occasion, what they stand for. This, if well considered, would lay great blame on those who make not their discourses about moral things very clear and distinct. For since the precise signification of the names of mixed modes, or, which is all one, the real essence of each species is to be known, they being not of nature's but man's making, it is a great negligence and perverseness to discourse of moral things with uncertainty and obscurity, which is more pardonable in treating of natural substances, where doubtful terms are hardly to be avoided, for a quite contrary reason, as we shall see by and by. Section 16. MORALITY CAPABLE OF DEMONSTRATION Upon this ground it is that I am bold to think that morality is capable of demonstration, as well as mathematics, since the precise real essence of the things moral words stand for may be perfectly known, and so the congruity and incongruity of these things themselves be certainly discovered, in which consists perfect knowledge. Nor let any one object that the names of substances are often to be made use of in morality, as well as those of modes, from which we will arise obscurity. For, as to substances, when concerned in moral discourses, their diverse natures are not so much inquired into as supposed. VG, when we say that man is subject to law, we mean nothing by man but a corporeal, rational creature. What the real essence or other qualities of that creature are in this case is no way considered. And therefore, whether a child or changeling be a man, in a physical sense, may amongst the naturalists be as disputable as it will. It concerns not at all the moral man, as I may call him, which is this immovable, unchangeable idea, a corporeal, rational being. For, were there a monkey, or any other creature to be found that had the use of reason to such a degree as to be able to understand general signs and to deduce consequences about general ideas, he would no doubt be subject to law, and in that sense be a man, how much soever he differed in shape from others of that name. The names of substances, if they be used in them as they should, can no more disturb moral than they do mathematical discourses, where, if the mathematician speaks of a cube, or globe of gold, or of any other body, he has his clear, settled idea, which varies not, though it may by mistake be applied to a particular body to which it belongs not. End of section 14.